0: What happens when we face difficult conversations? These conversations can heal. They can foster forgiveness. They can inspire and change perspective. Lean into these stories and discussions. I think both our guests and our listeners will find value in them. And selfishly, I know I will too. So let's go back to 2003. I was a sophomore in Lawrence, Kansas at the University of Kansas. And it was book buyback week. We used to have to buy our textbooks. We couldn't rent them. So we had to pay full price. And then we got to sell them back for pennies on the dollar at the end of the semester. So I had my textbooks, walked to the bookstore to sell them back. And as I walk into the bookstore, a lady from across the room yells at me, Oh, no, no, football players sell your books back over here. Well, I wasn't an athlete. So I looked around because I was fairly certain she probably wasn't talking to me, but there was no one in the direction that she was looking. So she she was talking to me and she kind of waved me over and I didn't know how to tell her this, but I wasn't an athlete. And the obvious thing to me is you have a, an obvious thing to me at the time is you have a young black male who's in college. And the assumption was, well, you know, he must be there on the, the merits of his athletic ability. Right. He's he, there's no way he's here just as a as a student. And I was pretty upset by it. Um, I just remember being really offended. I remember thinking how uh, you know, inappropriate, how racist of a comment that was. And it still stays with me today, you know, how that comment made me feel. But if I could fast forward to today, you know, that was almost twenty, twenty 20 years ago, 18 years ago or so. The perspective that I have on that particular incident is way different than it was back then. The insight that I've gained over the years has kind of allowed me to view that incident quite differently than I did back then. At the time, I thought it was racism. You know, I was quite offended. But now it's actually pretty clear to me that that wasn't necessarily overt racism. That was implicit bias. And her bias that black college students were athletes was so strong that she overlooked the fact that it was unlikely that 145 pound 5'10". Student was a Division I football player. So, what exactly is implicit bias? Implicit bias is when we have, you know, attitudes, beliefs, or stereotypes that are able to impact our decisions and our actions, the way we treat people, the way we understand things in an unconscious manner. And that can be kind of dangerous, right? But I think it's important to point out that implicit bias is very, very different from explicit forms of discrimination, like racism, sexism, ageism, bigotry, other forms of discrimination like that. They are two very distinct things. Because in this case, intent matters. When we're dealing with explicit discrimination, there is intent. There is uh, an intention to discriminate against someone for whatever reason. When we're talking about implicit bias, there is no intent. And when we talk about implicit bias, it means that someone's intentions were pure, but the subconscious effect had a negative impact on the decisions that they make. There's another part to this equation, though, that I think is important as well, because it is unfair for me to just stand up here and say, yeah, implicit bias is different from explicit forms of discrimination. And although it is for those who are on the receiving end of our collective biases, the groups in society who are at a disadvantage because of our collective biases, to them, the outcomes are independent of the intentions, meaning it doesn't matter to them that our intentions have been good and that we didn't mean to discriminate against them. The damage is done. And I think it's important to say, hey, yeah, there's a lot of hatred and explicit discrimination in our world still, but I think the impact of implicit bias is more significant than explicit forms of discrimination. And so we got to talk about this stuff. Given that I spend a good amount of my time leading workshops on implicit bias and teaching about implicit bias, I am quite aware of how complex a thing implicit bias is. But I'm really certain about two things. And that's that everybody has implicit bias and that we shouldn't necessarily feel ashamed of that. My reasoning for both of those thoughts goes hand in hand. Let me explain. Whenever I facilitate these discussions about implicit bias, one of my primary goals is always to destigmatize what it means to have implicit bias. That's usually my primary goal. And my move to destigmatize what it means to have implicit bias has nothing to do with the impact of implicit bias, because the impact of implicit bias is profound, and significant. And I would argue about that the impact of implicit bias is much greater than the impact of explicit forms of discrimination. The reason why I think it's important to destigmatize it is because for me, the most important thing is for us to have these conversations. And if we're able to destigmatize what it means to have implicit bias, if we're able to take away that shame and guilt that's often associated with implicit bias, well, people are simply gonna be much more likely to have these conversations. And the way I destigmatize it is simply by teaching where it comes from. Because I think once we all recognize where the implicit biases that we have come from, we'll realize that it's not really our fault. And it's a product of the way our brains work. It's the product of the environment that we live in. And a lot of it may be evolutionary. Even So let's talk about it. One of the main reasons we have implicit bias is simply the thing that makes humans human. It's the reason that humans are as efficient Of beings as we are. And it has to do with the way our brains work. The human brain essentially functions like a computer, right? It has a pretty significant processing power. And most of that processing happens below the surface of our conscious awareness. It's all subconscious. And a lot goes on that we're not aware of because our brains are able to say, hey, Gibran, you don't need to worry about this. You take care of the stuff that needs your conscious attention. I'll handle the subconscious stuff. And to be able to handle all of this information that's coming in at any given moment, our brains rely on pattern recognition. Our brains rely on mental shortcuts to really make these decisions that are, again, just below our conscious awareness. And to be able to do that, there is the threshold that once we've reached it, the brain feels like, hey, I have enough information to make this decision. And it makes that decision. And it does it really well. Again, we're really efficient. Our brains don't make a lot of mistakes when it comes to that, but we are doing this so much that there are going to be times where we slip up and biased decisions are formed when our brains think we have enough information to make a decision or take an action or a reaction, but we don't. And then that can result in some pretty significant consequences. The next relevant question is, well, where does the brain get that information it uses to make these decisions? Well, part of it, a big part of it comes from our past experiences, right? The interactions we've had since the first time we can remember having interactions and maybe even before through present, right? These interactions that we have shape the associations and the stereotypes and the attitudes that can result in biased decisions or actions it's these interactions that form all of this and when these interactions that we've had these past experiences are tied to really strong emotions then our brains really really hold onto these associations really well and so when we're making a subconscious decision when our brains are making subconscious decision it's pulling from these interactions to fill in the blanks to match up these patterns and then to make decisions. Our brains are good at that. What our brains aren't great at is differentiating these interactions that were we really experienced from another source that our brains kind of tap into, which is the experiences of others through stories or witnessing interactions that you really weren't part of, but you witnessed it. And in another significant place is what we witness in the media. And the media is a huge perpetrator of the biases that we Hold. And we know from anecdotally, from what we've observed, but also from really sound research, is that the media plays a big role in shaping many of the negative biases that underrepresented groups have to deal with, whether that's people of color, those who live in poverty, women, and other marginalized groups. You can look at the data and and it paints a really ugly picture. We know the media plays a big role in. The criminalization of black and brown people, right? Data that looks at actual non-fictional media. So we're talking television news has shown that the news is more likely to show a mugshot of a black or brown person than they are a mugshot of a white person. We know that the shows like Live PD and Cops that are, I would say, fortunately, no longer on the air represented crimes committed by minorities out of proportion to how many crimes minorities are actually committing in the communities that they were filming in. And if you look at gender and career, we see that the news media will represent a physician or a scientist or a lawyer or an engineer as a male, well out of proportion to how many males actually make up those fields in the community that that news is uh, airing in. And so you can see how the news can play a role in shaping who we associate as being criminals in our community or who we associate as being a physician or engineer or an architect in our communities. And whether we realize it or not, that sticks and that can form the basis for some of the biased interactions that we have. There's also really good scientific evidence that bias forms well before humans have any true lived experiences. So what are the humans that don't have a true lived experience yet? Well, babies actually. And there's a lot of good data out there, a lot of good research out there that demonstrates that babies as young as four, five, six months old are able to exhibit implicit bias. There's actually a fascinating group out of Yale known as the their research is known as the Yale Baby Lab. And they do a lot of research in regards to babies and bias. And in their really unique studies, they found that very arbitrary differences that a baby can detect lead to babies treating others poorly in terms of having differences or better if there are no differences. The really interesting research actually shows that when babies detect even very arbitrary differences, that baby is more likely to treat someone less favorably. One of the cool experiments, they offered these babies a choice between a snack that was Cheerios and a snack that was graham crackers. The baby decided which they liked better. And then they witnessed this puppet show and they watched these puppets pick between those same two snacks. And what they found is when the puppet picked the same snack as the baby, the baby was more likely to want to play with that puppet. If that puppet picked a different snack, the baby was less likely to wanna play with that puppet. Even more interesting was when a baby witnessed a puppet choose a different snack, that baby actually appeared to want that puppet to be harmed. It was fascinating. And there were multiple studies done from this group that really replicated a lot of this data. And really, what this means more than anything else is that we are born with some of these tendencies to recognize someone is different or someone is of another group and to treat them unfavorably. You know, as I think about, well, what, what is the reason for this? And you imagine, hey, there's a big scientific explanation for it, but I just don't think we really need a big scientific explanation as to why we do this as humans. I literally think it's as simple as we like people and things that remind us of us. And if they remind us of ourselves, we're more likely to treat them favorably. If they don't remind us of ourselves, we're a lot less likely to treat them favorably. And in some cases, we may treat them poorly. And this really gets down to group membership, right? Group membership is a very powerful stimuli, for lack of a better term, right? If we have found that we are tied to someone via whatever arbitrary group, whether it's a small or large group, the data shows that we are more likely to connect with them and we are we feel connected to someone we treat them better and we tend to think of groups like large groups like race gender age that sort of thing but depending on the context it can be a very arbitrary group like an accent or what part of town you live in or what hobby you like or what sports team you root for and depending on the context those arbitrary ties which they seem relatively arbitrary may still have significant impacts on how we treat others and there's so many studies out there that demonstrate this one that stands out to me is they look at fans of sports teams and they found in one uh, really interesting study where they had fans from a English Premier League soccer team and they found that if they were walking on campus and they witnessed what they thought was a jogger trip and fall If that jogger had a jersey on from a rival sports team, they were a lot less likely to try to help that individual to their feet than if that individual had a jersey on that supported the same team that they supported. So it's not just about race, gender or or age or whatever group sexuality. But if something as arbitrary as what team you root for can impact how we treat others, you can only imagine how these more socially charged categories could impact that. Along with group membership, I think there's another category that significantly impacts our biases and how we treat people, and that's the concept of value. And what I mean specifically is the value that society places on certain characteristics or attributes. And I think a really good example of this is what happened a couple of years ago at Starbucks in Philadelphia, where two black men, Dante Robinson and Rashawn Nelson, were ultimately arrested for loitering. If you don't know the story. The short of the long is that they were in Starbucks waiting on a, a third friend to meet them to have a, a meeting. And one of the gentlemen went up to the counter, asked for the code to get into the restroom. The lady working the counter said, "I'm sorry, you can't have the code. We only give the code to paying customers." He said, "Well, I'm going to be a paying customer. I'm just waiting on." The third person. Before we buy anything, she said no. He went and sat down, and within a few minutes, the police show up. They talk to him. They try to tell him, "Hey, we were waiting on someone else. We weren't just loitering." And before you know it, they're in handcuffs. And while they're in handcuffs, their friend shows up, a business partner. But despite that, they still were taken into custody and, and, and taken downtown. I think it'd be pretty fair to say that this might have been the result of both explicit and implicit discrimination, specifically implicit bias, along with racism, right? The the obvious thing to point out is that, you know, had they not been Black, would this have happened? Probably not, right? Um, There was a a white lady who was interviewed after the incident, and she said she was there for a whole hour uh, without buying anything and, and, and didn't get any trouble. So, you know, obviously race played a factor, but let's talk about something outside of race. I want to talk about this concept of value and how that contributes to the way we treat people. In our society, we value certain things more than others. And if we could take the race out of the equation, let's say we somehow lived in a raceless society and we look at what happened at Starbucks, I think there's some other factors that contributed. Right? You look at these gentlemen and the way they were dressed, which I would say is a similar way that I'm dressed when I go to coffee shop to read or hang out. That's in comfortable clothes, tennis shoes, sweats, maybe a hoodie, a jacket. But in our society, for whatever reason, we place more value on someone who's wearing a suit and a tie as opposed to someone who's in a sweatsuit or a comfortable outfit like that. And had these gentlemen been in a suit and a tie, would they have had to deal with what they had to deal with? There's no way of answering that, but but I would wonder if it would have been less likely. You look at the way they wear their hair, right? Both of them have longer hair like I do, ones in, in, in braids. The other one's picked out. One, one of them has a beard. The other one has a beard as well, actually. And in our society, for whatever reason, we tend to place more value on someone who is what we would call, quote unquote, clean cut, right? Shorter hair, clean shaven. And so you ask, had they wore their hair different? Would this outcome have been any different for these these gentlemen? Had they been smaller guys instead of bigger guys? Had they been women instead of men? Had they been much older or much younger? Would the associations and stereotypes that led to them being arrested have been the same if some of these characteristics were, were different? Now, I'd probably argue that some of those may have made a difference and we might have been looking at a different outcome. The point is not that They shouldn't have dressed that way or they should wear their hair different. So things like this won't happen. The point is, if they would have dressed differently or wore their hair differently, things like this might not happen. And that's the problem. For me, the most fascinating area of research as it pertains to implicit bias is the research that's done with functional MRI. And this is the same MRI that you've all heard of. right? When you twist your knee or have a bad headache, your your doctor may order an MRI. And that looks at the structure of an organ or a body part. Well, functional MRI actually looks at the organ's function. And what is able to be done is you, have, you get in an MRI machine just like you would any other time. And that functional MRI machine is able to detect increases in oxygen and increases in blood flow in different parts of the brain. And we know that when a certain part of the brain is working, well, that part of the brain needs more oxygen. It needs more blood flow. And so you can see what parts of the brain are working by seeing which parts of the brain activate on functional MRI because they're getting more blood and they're getting more oxygen. And because we know for the most part what every single area of the brain is responsible for, we can use functional MRI to understand an emotion or a feeling that someone is experiencing, even if that emotion or feeling has not yet been brought to their consciousness, even if it's implicit. And one of the most remarkable studies that I've ever read about in terms of functional MRI was a study on fear. And most of us have heard about the part of the brain called the amygdala, which is responsible for fight or flight, right? It's the, the fear center of the brain. When that's activated, we have to be ready to fight or run away. Right. And so there was a study done where they put individuals in a functional MRI machine and then they exposed them to things that are traditionally scary. They invoke fear in almost anyone. So in this case, it was pictures of snakes and pictures of spiders. And when they did that, they looked at the functional MRI and they saw the amygdala, the part of the brain responsible for fear, was activating, as it should have. Right. But then they did something else. They then exposed these individuals to a bunch of different pictures. Of men and women of different races, ages, sexualities, genders. And what they found was that in a significant portion of these participants, when they were exposed to images of young black males, there was a fear response greater than the fear response they saw when they were exposed to pictures of snakes and spiders and other scary things. So take a minute to think of that in the context of officer-involved shootings of unarmed black men and how an implicit fear of a black male may contribute to how some of these tragedies have played out. And there were other studies as well. Uh, One study showed implicit brain responses to individuals of the LGBTQ plus community. Uh, Another showed decreased empathy within the brain when someone of a different racial background observed someone being hurt. And so all of this is really just the first part of a discussion about implicit bias that gives some insight to where all of this comes from. And to go back to the idea of destigmatizing, I hope that you can appreciate that this is not by choice, right? Part of our biases come from the way that our brains work. More of our biases then come from the society that we live in that shapes these associations that we have. And so it's a tough uphill battle and I strongly believe that no one should be ashamed or feel guilty about the fact that they have implicit biases and everyone does have them. But I think it also sheds light on how difficult it is to mitigate the biases that we have. And I think the other part that is eventually worth some discussion is to actually get into the details of what does implicit bias mean for society? What are the outcomes? What is the impact of implicit bias on society? And then finally, what can we do about it? I hope that we're able to talk about that at some point. Let me know your thoughts about this episode. I'm easy to reach on Twitter at Gibran Pasha, on Instagram at What Medicine Did, and on unlockingimplicitbias.com. Thanks for leaning in with me.